Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll hear about a special kidney donation from a nurse to a young mother. The only thing I know about the girl is her name was Victoria, and they called me on my Victoria's fifth birthday. Sure enough, the lab tech that drew my blood's name was Victoria, and she had said, what are you doing? She goes, I have goosebumps. I have such a good feeling. Plus, the value of living donor kidney transplants. Patients who have high levels of antibodies who will wait 10, 15 years to get a match now have been given national priority. And we'll learn about opioid addiction and a unique holistic method of detoxification. We really have a drug-free approach that works, and our completion rate is 92%, which is way higher than anywhere else. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we'll examine the rising epidemic of opioid addiction and how psychiatrist Dr. Brian Johnson offers a unique, holistic method of detoxification. Plus, transplant surgeon Vaughn Whitaker will explain the value of living donor kidney transplants. But first, a story about an upstate university hospital nurse who was inspired by a Facebook post to donate her kidney to a woman she'd never met. HealthLink on Air contributor Joyce Gramza has the story. In a quiet room off a bustling hallway of Upstate University Hospital's surgical transplant unit, Jody Adams, a 40-year-old mother of six, is ready for surgery to remove her left kidney. I'm uh, here today to donate my kidney to a young mom that needed one. So we're uh, giving it to a 29-year-old woman that's a local woman here in Syracuse. And we saw this post on Facebook from the little boy saying, you know, help, my mom needs a kidney. If somebody could help me, would you do it? The post showed a three-month-old baby gazing into his mother's face. Hi, my name is Carter. This is my mommy, Victoria, holding me. She's pretty and smells nice. She doesn't feel so good, though. Dad said she needs a new kidney because hers are broken and we need someone to give her a new one. Janet Burton is baby Carter's grandmother, Victoria's mom. She and a large circle of family and friends were ruled out as good matches. She wrote the post in January. It was shared nearly 7,000 times. I never thought I would donate an organ. It never crossed my mind until I saw this post and this picture of her holding that baby. Jody, a registered nurse at Upstate, was among dozens who called Upstate's transplant unit to inquire. She was one of 49 people who went through physical and psychological screening and one of six identified as a potential donor. The only thing I know about the girl is her name was Victoria, and they called me on my Victoria's fifth birthday. How coincidental. So I get a call from the transplant team on, on my daughter's birthday. We went through all the questions, had the blood work drawn at uh, Upstate, and sure enough, the lab tech that drew my blood's name was Victoria, and she had said, what are you doing? She goes, I have goosebumps. I have such a good feeling. And I said, I do too. I said, I think I'm going to be this girl's match. Upstate's transplant chief, Reiner Grusner, will perform Jody's surgery. I think very few people still know that we happen to have two kidneys, that you need one kidney to live. And uh, 
sometimes the question is what is the risk for donating one kidney. The risk is much lower than driving in the car. The risk of death is about 1 in 10,000. The risk of a major complication is less than 2%. So the overall risk is very low. On the other hand, it really is a gift of life. Rusner says that gift is all too rare. Each year, some 5,000 people with kidney disease die awaiting a transplant. We have over 100,000 patients waiting for a kidney transplant, and we do only about 17,000 kidney transplants per year in the United States. So there's a huge gap between people that will receive a kidney and those that are waiting and will never receive a kidney transplant. Living donations not only help to fill that gap, they're also better for patients. So on average, a deceased donor kidney lasts for 8 to 10 years, whereas from a living or living donor, both related or unrelated, the kidney lasts between 18 and 20 years. So frequently, a living donor kidney is a kidney for life. And long-term studies show the benefits may also extend to donors. The uh, donor, if he or she ever loses the function of the other kidney, would not have to wait for a transplant for six or eight years, but they will automatically go to the top of the list. And the life expectancy of donors is... Um, higher than for the rest of the population. That's because living donors are selected for being healthy and then get lifelong follow-up. So they're diagnosed very early with any kind of disease if it happens and treated accordingly. In most living donor transplants, a family member or friend directs their organ to a loved one. Altruistic donation, where someone selflessly gives their kidney to an unrelated recipient, is unusual. The U.S. Organ Procurement and Transplant Network reports that nationally, of the 5,500 living donor transplants in 2014, just 3% were altruistic. I mean, what you are doing is great. And as Grusner and Jody discussed before heading to surgery, many folks think they should keep their spare kidney in case a family member needs it. But as this case demonstrates, odds are they'd need to look beyond family for a match. We probably would have had problems finding a kidney for the recipient. You know, if we had just another 80,000 people a year in the nation that would donate out of the goodness of their hearts, we wouldn't have anyone on dialysis. Social media could help make a big dent in that need. Transplant surgeon Von Whitaker. Gallup polls show that over 80% of Americans are interested in, in donating, and if they were asked by a close friend or family, three-quarters of them would give and over 50% would give to a stranger if asked. So there is this um, reservoir of goodness out there. Today, Dr. Whitaker will receive Jody's kidney from Dr. Grusner and give it to Victoria. The kidney, new kidney is actually placed in the pelvis where it's near to the bladder. Um, so the connection to the bladder is um, very easy. So at the end of the day, um, our, our recipient will end up having three kidneys. <laughs> and within three to four hours, um, by early afternoon, we're all done. And if everything goes as we expect, um, the kidney will make urine on the table, uh, which is usually a time of great celebration. Awaiting that celebration are two families who've also never met. Victoria's parents, Janet Burton and Scott Fitzpatrick, pace the hallway near the waiting so room. I I think we've been in pretty much every room in this hospital throughout the years. <laughs> they say since their daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 10, she suffered all sorts of complications, including periods of blindness from diabetic retinopathy. Victoria was diagnosed with end-stage renal disease um, about uh, two years ago, and she met with the transplant clinic to be evaluated to receive a new uh, kidney 
and during the process found out that she was expecting a baby. The high-risk pregnancy sent Victoria to dialysis, which brought constant nausea and vomiting and debilitating migraines. For the last six weeks of her pregnancy, she went to dialysis six days a week for six hours a day, and she had very little, if any, vision at that point, so she was, was pretty much just she was there to make sure her baby was born alive and healthy. It was horrible because she just sat there and listened to the TV, you know, for six days a week, six hours a day. But it worked. Carter was born premature but otherwise healthy, but Victoria's need for dialysis continued. So uh, we have been incredibly blessed with her little miracle baby, and... Um, we're just hoping now it's time for her miracle to get this kidney. Inside the waiting room, Jody's mom, Midge Staples, awaits word on her daughter. Kind of scared. Hoping everything goes all right for both people. I had mixed feelings at first, but I stand behind what my kids decide to do. Nice to meet you. Very well, very well. So she's doing, doing very well. It, it went as um, we had hoped it would go. Grusner's emergence from Jody's surgery brings good news and high praise. What your daughter is doing, I mean, that she really is a hero, you know. I mean, there are not that many opportunities where you can really save a life um, of someone else. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really great, great thing. So what you should do is take a deep breath, get something to eat. We'll just wait. Two days later, Jody and Victoria are up and about and have enthusiastically agreed to meet. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, we went over to meet Victoria. Just 20 minutes after their private introduction... I'm a little shy. Me too. Cameras roll as they meet the press. Uh, my name is Victoria, and I've had um, type 1 diabetes since I was 10. They hold hands, cuddle six-month-old Carter, and spread awareness of living donation. She's got a miracle baby. And this is my miracle baby. Miracle Carter. baby, yeah. And thanks to Jody. Yeah. Can, mommy gets to spend a lot more time with them. Yeah, I always thought organ donation is, you know, when you put it on your driver's license, you know, when something happens to you, you would be an organ donor. But after seeing this post and realizing you can be a live donor, how can you not do it? Jody explains why from day one she's felt Victoria is not a stranger. Victoria's, you know, somebody's mom, somebody's daughter, somebody's sister. She has a fiance, so it's you're not just giving your kidney to a stranger, you're giving it to somebody's mother or sister or brother. And this is just two days after surgery and I feel great. You know, people worry about surgery after and I'm thinking, I was felt worse after having my appendix out than donating a <laughs> kidney, right? Yeah, and as someone, the one who needed the kidney, you can never imagine some random person pretty much doing it for you. Three weeks later, Victoria and her mom visit the transplant clinic for one of many follow-ups. It's been amazing. <laughs> um, I just feel so good. Like, sorry. <laughs> just feel really good. And I can see my boy and um, like I have energy to like take care of him. Um, and we, I don't know, I, I just have so much fun with him. It's awesome. Like I have energy I never had before. Hi, good morning. Hi. Good to you? see you. Hi. Good morning. How are you been doing? Good. Sorry, good. I got crying. Crying? Well, not like back. Good crying? Good crying. <laughs> good crying. How long? One moment. Yep. Kidney's coming in. Throughout this Hello? appointment. What's happening here is good, but... Um... Unfortunately, somebody passed away. 
Hello? Whitaker makes urgent arrangements for another patient in need. Working out the details of shipment. Right now it's only 17 hours, which is still some time, but um, compared to your kidney, which we got <laughs> in two enough. hours, yeah. right? You know? <laughs> That's one of the great advantages of a live donor. A live donor. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take a two-hour kidney. Exactly. Yeah. But as Victoria admits, that kidney isn't that easy to ask for. You never want to ask people for help or to admit that you need help. Whitaker wants transplant centers to be more involved in helping all patients to make what he calls the big ask. Fortunately for the, the case that we saw today, um, a brilliant mother came up with a way of asking. I think we have the tools, we, we should use them. But there are ethical concerns. I think that really pushes the envelope of what are we requiring of ill people to package themselves in a way that a stranger would be willing to donate. And that makes bioethicists concerned. Physician Kathy Faber-Langendoon is a professor of bioethics at Upstate and directs its ethics consultation service. And there would be a danger in this system if getting an organ became a matter of sort of a beauty contest of who was most worthy. Today's system of getting organs aims for blind fairness. Deceased donations are based only on medical need. Directed donations to loved ones must be both uncompensated and uncoerced. Buying and selling human organs is strictly illegal. Faber-Langendoon says the middle ground of altruistic living donation is getting complicated. I think the inter an interesting question is what about the handful of people who in this case passed the medical screens and weren't chosen to donate a kidney? I think they have an interesting question before them if they were willing to give a kidney to this one person, but she happily no longer needs it because someone else rose up and was able to give a kidney. Then is there, does their altruism extend beyond this specific story. In fact, Upstate confirms that besides Jody, two others of the six possible donors from Little Carter's post have now actually set dates for their altruistic anonymous living kidney donations. There was a um, Facebook account that was put up with a picture of a young girl with a new baby. Barbara Flower is one of them, a nurse from the Albany area who also couldn't resist Carter's message. My kidneys are great. I can live with one kidney, no problem. Um, and I just want to help somebody to have a good life, a good quality life like I have. And I've taken care of people with kidney disease um, that have had to go on dialysis, so I know they, what they go through. Uh, they're sick until they get to dialysis again. And I've actually dealt with someone that decided to say, no, I've had enough and they were gone within a week. Whitaker is moved by the ripple effect of Janet's Facebook post. It's amazing how, how this circle of positivity can go on. Which Janet says wasn't at all planned out. I just sat down one night and I just, I just thought, look at this beautiful grandson of mine and look what's happening to his mom. So it, it was just a desperate mom wanting to get her daughter well. And they're endlessly grateful it reached Jody. Either whether you're thinking about giving a kidney, like it definitely changes your someone's life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you're looking for a kidney, it's not impossible either. Just keep your hopes up and pray. <laughs> 
I know a lot of prayers have been sent my way, and I'm very blessed. For HealthLink on Air, very blessed. I'm Joyce Gramsoff. Next, transplant surgeon Vaughn Whitaker helps us understand what's involved in donating a healthy kidney to someone in need. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. You know, more than 100,000 people in the United States are waiting for a kidney transplant. And sadly, some of them will die just waiting for that transplant because there are not enough donors out there. But some new advances in the way kidney transplants are being done is making a difference. And joining us to explain more about all of this is Dr. Vaughn Whitaker. He's assistant professor of surgery specializing in hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgery and transplant services at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Whitaker. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you. I know you've been with us before, and we've talked about some of these ideas, and I wanted to revisit these very important breakthroughs because the goal here is to shorten that list of people waiting. And so some things have happened most recently to allow that to happen. But before we go there, help us understand why living donation is so important. Living donation, thank you for having me, first of all. Living donation is very important because, for one, this is an unlimited uh, source of um, organs to alleviate this over 100,000 people who are waiting and dying. 21 people die per day waiting for an organ. The second issue is living donor organs are of higher quality. These are from healthy persons. They last longer. They, the bonds that are created are, are priceless. Um, so from that point of view, these organs last longer, the patients who get them will need to be retransplanted less frequently. And so you get less stress on the system because these organs essentially last for a very long time. And I think it, must, it needs to be stated that all of us only need one kidney to live. So we have, and we have two. So the idea is it really doesn't necessarily do any harm to the donor and gives life basically to the recipient. That's true. We have two kidneys. The first kidney donor in 1954 um, died at age in his 80s and unrelated to his renal transplant after he donated in his 20s. And the kidney transplant itself does have a high success rate, I mean, in terms of basically helping the, that individual, the recipient, to lead a, a more normal life. Absolutely. The, the, the publicly available information, SRTR, shows this over 98% success rate in the first year, um, and it's for children, is virtually 100%. So what are the greatest stumbling blocks that you found to finding living donors? I mean, is it that people are afraid? I mean, what, what seems to be in the way of this? I think there, that, that's a correct assessment. There's an element of fear, um, fear of how much harm will come to them as a result of doing this procedure. 
Um, there is a fear of pain. There is a fear of um, not being able to work, especially if you are from an economically challenging situation. Um, there is a fear of um, death, really. Um, and then, of course, there is family um, that you need to overcome um, who may not think this is a good idea. I want to get to a lot of that, those kinds of concerns as a little bit later, but what I want to talk about right now immediately is there have been some breakthroughs that have enabled you um, to find more methodologies for making these kinds of, where there were, there were stumbling blocks before in terms of certain issues in terms of finding good matches. For example, this whole idea of blood type compatibility. There have been changes. Explain that to us. Absolutely. Um, in the past, we would tell patients if they came with a relative or a friend or, or anyone who came with them, if they're not of a compatible blood group. So, for example, if you're a blood group O, that person needs to be a, a blood group O in order to donate. Um, now that has changed tremendously. It doesn't matter what the blood type of your donor is. Um, they're more than one ways we can actually proceed with getting this um, transplant done. One of the ways is to is to get rid of some of the antibodies that you would naturally have towards that particular donor, or we can perform what we call swaps. So basically, that has been taken off the table as a problem. The other thing that I thought was a fascinating breakthrough is this whole idea of pairs, and eventually this whole idea of chains. Explain what I mean. So, you know, these are performed usually out of the, the, the abundance of goodness of someone's heart. And in fact, we have two coming up. We have two persons who have come forward um, to say, I want to donate my kidney. And because they have come forward, what we're able to then do is give, and we call these donors altruistic donors, we're able to give their organ, especially if they're a blood group O, which means they can give to anyone, to someone who is in an incompatible pair situation. So they have a donor, so let's say someone is a blood group A and their donor is a blood group B. That blood group O altruistic donor who has come forward can then give to the A recipient and then the B donor who was originally incompatible can then now give to someone who is a blood group B who may have an incompatible um, donor pair. So the, excuse me, the bottom line now here is that by making these matches kind of almost across larger populations, you can find, basically you can create compatible pairs where there were none before. Absolutely. And you get this domino effect of positivity where um, the altruistic donor is able to give to one incompatible pair and then that donor in that incompatible pair can then give to another incompatible pair, and that can continue for a very long, long time. So it sets up almost a chain, a, a chain effect. Exactly. And the other very significant change, seems to me, is this idea that you don't have to necessarily do it in the same institution at the same moment. That is exactly true. It can be done um, across institutions, even across continents. Um, this is not commonly done, but it has been reported that um, it, it can be done. The, the, the kidney can be flown across the Atlantic. Um, right now, it's most commonly performed within the continental United States, and it doesn't have to happen during the same sitting. It can happen weeks or, or, or months um, afterwards. So it, when you say weeks or months, how long can they keep a kidney alive and Well, functional? I mean, 
one pair can oh one pair can can take, happen and right. then the the, the next right. the next part of the domino right. effect can then right. happen in a different moment in time. So there's been such a, um, an increased demand for kidneys. Explain that why, in this basically all worldwide, but in this country specifically. Right. Um, you know, if you look at the graph, we see that from the we've been tracking this since the 1980s. There's been an exponential explosion of those who have been added to the wait list. For one thing, um, people are more confident about uh, the, the the transplant. It has come to to become a mainstream medical team, so more people are being referred um, for transplantation. The other thing is, our uh, people are living longer, um, and dialysis treatments and management of of patients um, is getting better. So patients are actually living longer on dialysis, and and um, the government actually mandates that transplant be an option. But isn't it also true that we have more people who are diabetic, and maybe who are you know due to obesity or what have you, and end up in renal um, failure? And I probably should have mentioned that first. There is actually an increase in the number of patients who are iller. Um, more diabetics. In fact, there's a concern that by 2040, the number of diabetics is going to be so much more. And this is being fueled in part by the by the um, obesity epidemic. Um, for one, you know, during this time, because of this, we're facing the notion, um, because of childhood obesity, that we may have a generation that has a, a shorter lifespan compared to previous generations. And there's a new system that's been put in place, though, to help another way of helping with this list, and it has to do with there's a new kidney allocation system. Explain that. So the new kidney allocation system came into place in December 4, 2014, and um, this seeks to make kidneys more available to groups that were prior um, more disadvantaged. So, for example, children, they have been made as as they ought to be a priority in getting the best organs. So the best organs typically are from the younger donors, deceased donors. The other group that has benefited greatly in this regard are African Americans. Um, they tended to be on dialysis for much longer periods of time. In the previous system, your wait time was counted from the time you actually registered or you came to the transplant center and say, I want to be um, on the transplant list, regardless of how long you had been on dialysis prior to that. Now it's been changed. It's, it's based on the length of time you've been on dialysis. And what this is, this has benefited the African-American groups because they tended as a group, when it compared, compared it to other groups, to have some of the longest dialysis um, times. The other group that benefited greatly from this um, Patients who have high levels of antibodies who will wait 10, 15 years um, to get a match um, now have been given national priority. So instead of just enjoying local and regional priority, they now have national priority. And whenever a kidney becomes available nationally, they get to see whether or not they're a match. So their wait time is uh, much, much shorter. That's, that sounds like it's made a big difference. So one other point I think we started to talk about, people being afraid to be a kidney donor. I think along with this new allocation system, it must be noted that if you do give a kidney, you would be put to the very top of the list should you run into trouble. In other words, if you're a donor and you run into trouble, you would be at the very top to receive a kidney. 
Absolutely. Um, whenever you donate an organ, this is true. You, if you ever need an organ at any point in time, you will be given priority for getting an organ. So how does it, exactly how does somebody become a kidney donor? What are you looking for? You know, what kind of person do you need to be the donor? Tell us about that. Anyone can be a kidney donor. All they have to do is be willing to, to, to do it. Um, be over 18, be relatively healthy, um, be, encourage people to, um, to be lean, essentially, um, not be overweight, or if you're overweight, to lose some weight. Um, diabetics, um, we don't take kidneys from diabetics. Um, but generally, um, healthy, free of any cancers, free of any infections, and, um, that, and be willing. The most important thing is just being willing. Um, typically, we don't ask patients to necessarily screen themselves, but just call the transplant center, and um, and we have many great professionals who are will will comb through your medical records with 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 very fine tooth comb, and um, if there are any issues, we'll we'll we'll, we'll raise them with so you. So willingness and being uncoerced is very important, and probably having a support system around you to to support you through it. But what is it? What's it like for a donor? What do they actually go? You know, what do they go through? So initially, the donors come in. They, they indicate to us that they are willing. They go through that screening process. If it's a go, there are no indi contraindications identified. They're invited to come in to do some preliminary blood tests to get their blood type. We also want to check your urine, um, a 24-hour urine collection, or some other method of checking how well your kidney functions. Um, once we've established that your kidney functions well and there are no major contraindications, we then have UCO providers. And um, typically, once you've gotten through that, we also want you to see your social worker or dietitian and um, other members of the multidisciplinary team. If you can go through that without any issues, you're found to have a good support system, then um, you're a go. And what happens to you? How soon after you make that kind of initial foray might you undergo surgery? It could be as short as uh, a four months. Four, four weeks um, into into coming forward. And what's it like for the donor, though? I mean, how long is the hospitalization? Just briefly, I don't want to run out of time. Just give us a, a thumbnail of what happens. Uh, two to three days you're in a hospital. The surgery lasts about four hours. We do it by these mini incisions, laparoscopically. Um, so you're able to be back to yourself, um, usually in short order, usually been two to six. We give you six weeks off. But generally speaking, patients are able to move around and be able to do their regular activity within two weeks. So basically, how can people find out more about how to become a kidney donor? You can call us um, at the Transplant Center at 315-464-5413 and ask to speak to a living transplant coordinator or any other surgeons or and, nephrologists. And there are people who have donated kidneys who are now coming forward to help explain what the experience is like for someone who's interested? Absolutely, and we have lots of living donors who are doing this. In fact, this past Monday we had one such session and we had two of our living donors, um, Jody Adams and um, Nicole Doty, who came forward and um, they shared their experiences. That was very, very interesting. And I'm sure very helpful to those who are considering it. Dr. Whitaker, thank you so very much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Vaughn Whitaker, Assistant Professor of Surgery, specializing in hepatobiliary, pancreatic surgery, and transplant services at Upstate Medical University.
up the rising epidemic of opioid addiction and some detox methods that are working. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, since the 1990s, the medical use of narcotics has multiplied tenfold, with more than 3% of U.S. adults now being maintained on opioid medications for pain. Addiction experts argue that patients with chronic pain have a high propensity for addiction by virtue of also experiencing depression, anxiety, a history of substance abuse, panic attacks, post-traumatic stress, and personality disorders. Once addicted, these chronic pain patients may be quite challenging to detoxify and may require the use of narcotics for years or for life. Here with more on all of this and what can be done to help detoxify these addicted patients is Dr. Brian Johnson, Professor of Psychiatry and Anesthesia and the Director of Addiction Medicine at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Johnson. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much. So let's first just help me understand from your perspective, how do you see the current state of affairs when it comes to pain treatment in the United States? Why has it become such a problem? Well, there are several issues. One is that there's no evidence about what the best treatment for chronic pain is. So it's been a matter of social movements. Before the 1980s, doctors were careful with opioids. They recognized that addiction is a constant uh, worry. In the 1980s, a group of physicians called the Right to Pain Treatment Physicians began advocating for more opioid use They started to say that physicians were uh, not giving enough opioids, that we had a wonderful drug, opioids of different kinds, that could fix people's pain, and doctors just needed to start prescribing more. This got written into all kinds of regulations, so hospitals are graded about pain relief, and if you don't give opioids, you get bad scores. So, so there was a, the attempt was really a humanistic one initially, but it had unintended consequences. Uh, I think humanistic, as a psychoanalyst, I would not describe it that way. I would describe it as grandiose, okay. that doctors want to do more than they can actually do. So this grandiosity pervaded the medical profession. Pain services that just give opioids proliferated. Doctors began having instant, fabulous results, and no one really understood opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which means the longer you're on opioids, the more everything hurts. And then you get into a vicious cycle, more pain, more opioids, more pain, more opioids. Then huge numbers of people started to die from accidental overdoses, which had not happened before. So by a few years ago, everyone in the United States recognized that these grandiose doctors had created an epidemic of drug use. So today, explain the relationship between this whole idea of opioids, both the prescribed kind and the street drugs, and why this movement now to heroin, which has become really a major epidemic in this country. Doctors and drug dealers both uh, issue opioids, to their patients or customers, and it's a difference of amount. 
So an average dose of opioids is 60 milligrams of morphine a day. The diacetyl morphine, that's the generic name of heroin brand diacetyl morphine. The usual drug dealer sells about 100 milligrams of diacetyl morphine per bag. It's the equivalent of 300 milligrams of morphine. Wow. So a regular street habit of 10 bags a day oh my goodness. is the equivalent of 3,000 milligrams of morphine, 60 a day by doctors. So as the opioid-induced hyperalgesia gets stronger, people tend to switch from doctor-level use to dealer-level use. So is it that you become, when you say hyperalgesia, you feel pain more or the pain becomes exacerbated or is it that the the drug no longer, you've become kind of desensitized to the efficacy of the drug? This is a 21st century discovery. This is not tolerance. Pain is required for survival. If you don't feel pain, you have tissue destruction and death. So the response of the brain, the first paper came out in 2001 to blocking the opioid system is an overshoot of pain drivers. And people don't recognize this. Many physicians don't recognize this. So the patient says, doctor, this stuff has stopped working. I need more. Doctors prescribe more. And eventually, they kill some of their patients. So basically, the body's reaction to the use of this is to need more. This is a conceit. This is what I mean about grandiose doctors. You can't shut off the pain system, there's no way to do it. So how do you feel about the ethics then of using these kinds of drugs for pain? Well, I'm very upset because just about any other side effect would result in these drugs being taken off the market. If it raised blood pressure a little and there were more strokes, these drugs would be immediately taken off. There is a odd cultural thing in the United States where when people become addicted, You don't blame the drug, you blame the person. So this like 30% chance of becoming addicted to prescribed opioids, it's accounted for as these are bad people rather than it's a drug that is not right to give long term. So help us understand what happens to these people who are addicted. In, In other words, besides obviously the hyperalgesia, I mean, what does it do is it an overlay on whatever else they may have been experiencing before in terms of the, the social impact on it, the emotional impact on it, um, their functionality? I want to clarify a concept from a 2013 paper about addicted patients versus pain patients. Doctors are terrific at putting people on opioids. They don't seem to know how to get people off opioids. So there's a huge population of these poor people. They stop the drug. They start puking. They're anxious. They're terrified. They go back on the drug. They're marooned on the drug for years. The doctors don't help them. Is this a patient problem or is it a physician problem? Then there's another group that are are absolutely addicted and do all kinds of horrible things and have those comorbid psychiatric disorders that you described at the beginning. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with psychiatrist and addiction specialist, Dr. Brian Johnson. We're talking about opioid addiction and potential treatments that could work. So obviously, the key here is helping people detoxify, getting them off these drugs. What kinds of techniques or methods can really work? 
Okay, so this is a huge problem for the field. And uh, go the governor has uh, got a blue ribbon committee that's gone all over the state, and people are complaining there's not enough maintenance, there's not enough inpatient beds. What we have at Upstate, which is unique in the world, is a neuropsychoanalytic addiction service. What that means is we put brain science and psychodynamics together. So we had to come up with, if we're going to take people off opioids, a new way to do it. So the first thing is people have emotional issues that they're pacing over with opioids. We do psychotherapy. People have craving that's induced by the drug and other drugs you use, especially cigarettes. So we tell everyone if you quit cigarettes and opioids, your prognosis is excellent. If you try to stay on inhaling nicotine, your prognosis is terrible and we get a very high quit rate. And finally, the opioid-induced... Excuse me for interrupting you, but a quit meaning people who quit smoking or quit, quit your program? <laughs> well, no, they quit cigarettes. Oh, good. And third, opioid-induced hyperalgesia doesn't seem to go away on its own. So we've pioneered low-dose naltrexone. It's a pure blocker giving, given in tiny doses, and it brings back the brain's natural... Uh, endogenous morphine pain damping system. Is that something like akin at all to the whole idea of using methadone with people who are it's the addicted? the polar opposite. So uh, the methadone or buprenorphine maintenance approach is you just throw in the towel. This poor person is never going to get off opioids, so doctors should prescribe them. And of course, it's again, it's grandiose and codependent, and they end up using your drugs plus lots of other drugs. We really have a drug-free approach that works. Except for this other drug that you're using, at least, is that a short-term? It's a pure blocker, and we use a biological test called the cold presser test, simply a beer cooler full of ice water. We find people are hyperalgesic when they put their forearm in there and they have to pull it right out. It hurts too much. So we use the cold presser time to follow the response to low-dose naltrexone, and we give them the low-dose naltrexone until their pain damping returns to normal. So basically what you're saying is it's a really kind of a multidimensional approach to help people, but you see that as really the answer. I would say holistic. Holistic, okay. So the, the different components are some degree of talk therapy then right. that takes place? Okay, and some degree of medical intervention in the form of this drug that you were talking about? We make about? detox a snap. We do it a way that no one else does it. We give a single dose of long-acting buprenorphine when people come in at the beginning of withdrawal. It takes a week to fade off the opioid receptors. We give some other minor medicines for insomnia, anxiety, gut cramps. And our completion rate is 92%, which is way higher than anywhere else. So this is basically, was this technique evolved, or did it evolve as a result of some study you had done? Or is this something that over time in your own practice, you kind of saw the need for putting all of these elements together? Yeah, so there are two approaches to discovering new things in medicine. One is you do those studies, you have a hypothesis, you get some numbers, you get an answer. What psychoanalysts do, they try one thing, they see how it works, they understand what went wrong, they try something better. So by this point in my career, I've done about 16,000 detoxes, 
And by iteratively changing things, we've come up with a, a new method that really works. How long does it take from the time a person wants? First of all, this is inpatient? No, there's no. no need for beds or anything like that. So basically someone, just give us a walkthrough. Patient so, A contacts you, they're addicted to opioids. What happens? Well, they call my administrator, Jackie Hattersley. She says, you have to bring a support person with you because this is an outpatient detox. They say, I'm sorry, there's no one can come with me. Jackie says, well, there are some other places I can refer you to. And then they go, oh, you know what? My mother can come. They come in with the beginning of their recovery community. Our best support person is an AA sponsor. They give their whole history, and they get everything diagnosed in the first visit if they have ADHD, depression, borderline personality. Often people have five diagnoses. If they're in withdrawal, we send them right to our upstate kidney pharmacy. They get their buprenorphine, and they take it in front of us until their withdrawal is in remission. They walk out feeling great. They come back every day for a week. They get their psychotherapy every day for a week. They see doctors. We make the changes that are needed because it's not a one-size-fits-all treatment. Once they're through their withdrawal, we see them twice a week until we feel that they are in a process of recovery, all the comorbid disorders, or at least in treatment of one kind or another. The average number of visits is 13, and that's why we can take in so many people. We don't provide endless treatment. If you go on buprenorphine or methadone maintenance, you're expected to be on it 50 years from now. So the bottom line is you have a short, relatively short-term intensive intervention. Yes. Multi, holistic, multi-pronged. And then what has been, you said you had a completion rate of 92%, but what happens to these people? You've been doing this a while, a year from now two years from now. All right, so I am in the middle of setting a record for the most rejected grant applications. All we have is our <laughs> clinical uh, outcomes where we see people 13 visits, so about a month, and the one month sober rate is 60%. So basically you're seeing that within a month, for, help me understand that a little better, explain that. So people come in, maybe they have a pain condition, maybe they have an addiction condition. A month later, 60% of them are still off opioids. But beyond the month, do you have any data at We this have point? one study that's out for review, a six-month failed back surgery syndrome and opioid addiction study. 11 out of 30 people, but they had back surgery. They can walk into any doctor and immediately get, get opioids. opioids. Mm -hmm. 11 out of 30 made it six months. Wow. Well, it's incredibly hopeful. It's incredibly positive. And it sounds like it could potentially be a model for programs throughout the country. So I'm going to leave it there, and I'm going to ask you to potentially come back and tell us more about what's happening in this whole world, because it sounds like you're really onto something. My guest has been Dr. Brian Johnson, professor of psychiatry and anesthesia, and director of addiction medicine at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. 
Thank you, Linda. Carson Jordan is a student at Wells College working on a thesis project about class implications and gender roles in her rural extended family. Her poem, Why I Realized, is a part of that series. Why I Realized. My family has always accepted the predicament of our economic standing. We have always accepted our mean, bitter thoughts on money and the bills and rich people and their money and things. My father has always tried to avoid the piercing, stifling trials of adulthood. Maybe just so my brother and I would like him a little more than he liked his never-around, too-serious, drunk father. Since the beginning, we've heard stories about bare feet and grumbling bellies, told to be funny, but were so heavy that we felt all the weight of our family's poverty as children. We got full on the stories, the hurt, the hunger, the hatred, the bare feet, the sixth grade educations, the fear, the mean words, the defensive nature, the lack of heritage, the feeling of camaraderie, the tragic wives, the absent husbands, the miserable children, the lack of faith in any sort of love. And that's when we realize that we are white trash and we let our stomachs settle. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we learn what's new in pediatric emergency room care in central New York, plus how to recognize elder abuse and what to do about it, and new breakthroughs in PTSD research. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>